Hello and welcome to Fascinating Nouns, the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now together we arrive at this curious nexus point and we will explore the strange, unusual, the offbeat, the bizarre, the intriguing, the interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I'm your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now today we're going to investigate all the things I just mentioned, strange things, unusual things, offbeat things. Because we're talking with Pacific Animal Productions' Carla Majeski, and she has a menagerie of bizarre animals that she uses to teach and educate people. Um, this is going to be a good one. Yeah, I was able to meet her in person, and that means lots of great video on the YouTube channel. Go to fascinatingnouns.com. Click, at the, click the link at the bottom of the page, the YouTube link. Lots of stuff's going to come up. You can also watch the videos on my Facebook page. Facebook.com backslash fascinating nouns. And if you want to know where all this stuff is coming from, get on my Twitter feed, Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn at fascinating noun, and you can be up to date on everything. And an Instagram page is coming. So I will inundate you with great pictures, videos to make you feel like a part of the experience. Uh, so without further ado, let's get on with that experience. And we are talking with Carla Majeski. Carla, thanks for being on the program. I'm really happy to be here this morning. Thanks for having me. No problem. I am really excited about this because I am an animal lover. Um, now, yes. what, how could, I'm going to butcher what you do, so why don't you tell me what exactly it is that you do? Well, I, in a nutshell, say we do wildlife education, which is really a small explanation of what we do. Um, we're multifaceted in our uh, facility. We take in animals that need permanent placement, whether it's a from a zoo, and I should say exotic animals, or from um, an individual that has had an animal and didn't realize what they were getting into, or have had illegal animals and then are required by the courts to place them or euthanize them, which is not a good option. So um, our facility has grown in the last 20-some, 28 years, and now we have about 190 individual animals and about 45 different species, and I have uh, five and a uh, actually, six full-time winter keepers. We go up to about 17 in the summertime. So education, teaching people about uh, animals and habitats, taking care of animals that need full-time home and placement, and uh, just out getting what we call outreach, getting out there and doing the good work, telling people why exotic animals don't need to be pets, but how they're wonderful for biodiversity and keeping our habitats healthy. You know, it's kind of interesting. I just thought about this, uh, kind of a weird thing to say, but from a business standpoint, uh, it works out pretty well because you kind of get all of your animals, which would normally, I imagine, be very pricey. Um, you kind of get them for free. That's a weird yeah, that, bonus to it. That is a weird bonus. And, but I should tell anybody and everybody, if you're thinking that, and you probably, if you're a pet owner, realize this, the initial cost of your companion dog whether you do an adoption or whether you buy a purebred, I always opt for adopting an animal because there's lots out there, but um, that is not the that is not the monetary um, expense, really. That's a one-time initial. It's the care and the feeding and the veterinarian cost, and that's why I try to have the most professional keepers to keep everybody as healthy as possible. But, yeah, it, it, it does work out for us. The interesting is, thing is you don't get it request what you would like or what would be most beneficial for education you get what you get and that has turned out to be very cool 
Well, I'd say, yeah, that would almost have that, that effect because you're getting anything. And so you're teaching everyone, you have a little bit of everything in your, in your, um, in your little group of animals, you know? Right. It's really diverse. So, I mean, are so the people you have on staff, including yourself, are you guys qualified to be veterinarians? Like, do you guys have the training to do all that kind of work yourself? Oh, that's a great question. Um, all of my staff has uh, very specialized or at least uh, biology or zoology majors. Um, I have a degree in exotic animal training and wildlife management. I also am an animal health technician, which at the time is what they call them, and now I think it's called something different. But, um, yeah, I'm not a veterinarian, but have been through all the training of being a nurse's assistant or a doctor's assistant, and I used to be an x-ray tech and surgical assistant for um, orthopedics, uh, in animals. So I have that background. Um, a couple of the other people have also worked in vet hospitals, but mostly, uh, education and, um, animal husbandry, which is animal keeping, but everyone's real specific with what they're able to do and what their background has been in pretty much working with animals. So pretty much anyone could bring in anything, including a human being, and you guys would be able to help them <laughs> in some aspect, right? I I feel pretty confident in that now through the years. Yes, we have seen lots and have done lots. Yes. So now, how did you get into all this? What what sparked your interest in doing this? You know, I think a lot of people, and I hear this because a lot of um, kids looking for careers to say the same thing. I've always loved animals, and my family unique is they nurtured that. Um, they both have really fun and eclectic jobs. My dad, um, he does custom homes and so he's a contractor by trade but uh, really pretty much did and picked what he wanted to do and my mom has worked in production television and movie and different productions so they both have followed their dreams and so they encourage that in their kids and you know I always loved animals so they're like yeah that's great you know but make sure that you get the education behind it that was always their draw they wanted us not just to into what our careers might be but to know exactly what you're doing, have the education behind it. So I'm blessed with that. And um, so, so, yes, I had horses as kids. Um, I rode actually rodeo at a point in high school. I was on a rodeo team, and uh, I wanted to be a veterinarian, started doing that, and then found out that you could do many things in the animal field and ended up doing exotic animals and working for a couple of fabulous wildlife parks doing conservation work. Well, let me just pick on something you said there because you sparked my interest when you said rodeo. Um, It's funny. I had uh, a conversation with someone over Christmas who was really into rodeos, and I knew a guy in high school who actually was nationally ranked in rodeo. Um, Aren't they – they're not exactly the nicest to their animals, right? You know what? A stock contractor, so rodeo is a couple of different parts. There's the athletes that ride on them. Um, there's the contractor that provides the stock for them to be ridden and roped. And uh, then there's the people that actually produce the rodeo. If those athletes have unhealthy or um, damaged animals, they don't want to ride that stock contractor's animals. So, I mean, it seems like a harsh sport. But the people that take care of those animals and bring them and provide them have to have athletic animals and healthy animals. And so if you're treating them crappy and being um, mean to them, 
they're not going to be in the best shape to provide the best ride for your cowboys or the fastest animal to get out of it. Now, when I watch the sport, and they have adjusted the sport quite a bit um, from the roping and the um, bulldogging, they've put protective things on the animals. I agree. When I was a kid, I always thought that was pretty harsh, you know, pulling that little calf over. But this is all Americana and uh, what our our cowboys, which is unique to any other place in the whole entire world, how they would bring down stock so they could do vet checks on them, so they could neuter them, they could identify them for the different cattle men, so they knew when they were in the mountains how to separate out the herd. So it is a long-standing history. I agree there's things and precautions we can take to make it better on the stock, but if you have ill-treated stock, if you're mean to your animals, if you don't feed them properly, you're not going to have, you won't be in business, so... Well, what, it's, it's, uh, but even when you ride them, so I mean, you know, the, the bucking Broncos and they're not angry, you know, from what I understand, they're angry, they're, not. they're angry because you're taking their genitals and tying them up and giving them a good old, good old yank. I mean, is that wrong or am I, uh, how does that yeah, work? Yeah, I, that's called a bucking strap. That's nece- not necessarily on their genitals. And that is a common misconception. It's in the, uh, flank region, which would be in your, uh, like in your hips, your pelvic area. And they're trying to kick that strap off. So, yeah, it's, it's not an uncomfortable, but it's an annoying thing. So they want to kick that off. It's, it has nothing to do with their testicles or, you know, any of their uh, being indignant to them. Yeah, they want to get that athlete off of them. They want to get that cowboy off of them. And um, a long enough ride to get up score is eight seconds. So they're trying to kick that strap off for eight seconds. I guess it's actually not bad. I, agree. When I, when I, I can you I, can look Yeah, you can look at it either way, but hopefully I'm explaining it clearly as I see it. No, you are. I mean, it's good to I mean, I always thought that they were pretty I, I mean, I've heard stories cuz I mean, I grew up in a kind of a, a a small town in the country, so um I always heard stories about that. But the you know, if trying to kick off a strap is much different than than in pain because your you know your manhood's being squished into you know mashed potatoes. I, I agree. I could not get behind a, a a sport if that was it. I mean, that that sounds totally inhumane and agreed. So if they're tying up their testicles, they are doing it wrong, and I would not support that stockholder, <laughs> stock contractor. Well, that's good to know. Thank you very much. Uh, well, so, You're welcome. So let's go into these ex- so exotic animals. Um, a weird segue mm-hmm. from the rodeo, which is highly domesticated animals. But when you say exotic animals, mm-hmm. is this lumping basically everything that isn't a cat or a dog into a category? Is that kind of how I understand exotic? That is exactly how um, our regulations here in the United States separates it. Anything that's considered a non-domestic animal. So a question would be, well, is a camel an exotic animal? Actually, it's considered a domestic animal as well as a llama. So exotic animals considered anything that would be a non-traditional pet or domestic animal that we would have in our household. So we curve or bend the rules here, though, in the United States because we like what we call pocket pets, little exotic animals like hedgehogs and sugar gliders. But then individual states put regulations on those as well. What's a sh- Did that make it more confusing? <laughs> yeah, completely. But I guess I get it because what you're basically saying is a camel is a domesticated breed. But if you had it as a pet yeah. here in the United States, it'd be exotic because we don't have camels well, naturally no. here, right? Well, you can have a camel as a pet in the United States. 
because enough people have gotten behind and said, look, this animal's been domesticated for 35, you know, 3,500 years. So this animal is not considered an exotic animal. It is exotic to the United States, but people have had them here so long now that they are considered a domestic animal. So there's always something that blurs the line. But essentially anything that's not, um, well, actually here in the United States, you can't have a hawk or a raccoon that's considered an exotic animal, non-domesticated pet. Wow. I mean, animal that it's non-domesticated, you can't have it for a pet. A raccoon is considered an exotic pet, but a camel is not? I know. Now that's confusing. There's always... <laughs> it is confusing. I'm sorry, but it's true. <laughs> what about a possum? Are those considered exotic? Uh, yes, they are. They're, for as in the pet you know, industry, yes. That's not a domesticated pet. So that's considered a native species, but it's an exotic animal. You can't have for a pet. Where are possums? Nor do I recommend it. <laughs> where, where are possums <laughs> native to? Because they seem to be everywhere. Are they just native to the, uh, like North America or is it? Elsewhere? Okay, this is cool. Uh, a North American opossum is our only marsupial that lives here in the United States. And originally they were only found on um, the coastal regions, so East Coast and West Coast. But as people traveled across with, uh, like, our wagon trains, they actually followed people's trash and food because they're scavengers and opportunists. Now we have opossums, particularly in those states, which were um, wagon train states, you know, that would bring people from one coast to the Midwest to the other coast. So um, they're a, a marsupial that is only found here in the United States. Now there are possums found in South America and they're close relatives. And so that means they're also related to the marsupials that are found specifically and only in Australia, which is kind of a cool and unusual oddity. That is really cool. And it's also funny that I remember learning the word opossum when I was a kid and very quickly the yeah. O went away. And I don't know anyone who I know. Like in common you know, colloquial <laughs> language says opossum but that is the real name of the animal isn't it you got it yes and when we say it in our shows people think we're being funny but nope our north american opossum is not a possum because it's uh, actually there are possums p-o-s-s-u-m that are south american or australian it's fascinating this stuff i love this stuff and it's kind of cool <laughs> because the world we live in now a lot of these animals have you know, when they were more compartmentalized um, by nature, where they, you know, where they exist naturally, uh, it's a little different mm -hmm. than when they started spreading around. So, you know, it's very possible that possums from South America have made their way to the United States, whether it's in people's houses or whatever. So these, these two could live side by side and not even know it, is what I'm saying. Exactly, which is a perfect uh, reason why... Um, having these exotic pets can be detrimental to North America. In reality, probably not, but theoretically, because if we have a whole bunch of hedgehogs and people decide they don't want them and let them go, they will repopulate and become a natural part of our habitat here. But they don't have any predators that have learned to eat them, so they could cause an imbalance. So 
So that was an educational moment right there. It sure was. And we're actually <laughs> going to get to invasive species in a second, but uh, and, and, okay. and man-caused invasive species, which I think is you know destroying yep. several very delicate ecosystems, just, even in the United States, uh, much less the world. Absolutely. Um, Particularly here. Yeah. I actually was just reading an article. Uh, you know, I'm going to save that for later. I'm not going to. I'm not going to spoil that. But I think you'll find it very interesting, knowing what I know about you and your interest. We're going to get to that. Um, but let's talk about okay. let's talk about your uh, your company, Pacific Animal Productions. Now, as to me. And this is this is me. Uh, do you, well? Let me ask you the question first before I tell you about myself. Let's let's make it about you, Carla. What uh, what is your favorite part about what you do with your company? You know, I am so excited to be able to share what I get to live and do and experience on a daily basis with people I don't know and people I do know. But I love meeting new people and sharing, if you will, gee whiz facts and cool experiences with animals. And to me, it just makes my heart sing. I get so excited about that. And I wake up every morning excited to get to do that. So that's what the whole company is, sharing this wildlife experience in a safe and um, controlled way. But I think human nature likes the wild side of life. And uh, it's a it's a better way to explore it and understand it when you have a safe way to do it. Now, I imagine most of what you do is done in front of or around children. Um, my, that would be the primary, yes. My, my <laughs> guess is you and I have very different feelings on how that would be fun, but do you enjoy being around kids? And by kids, I mean baby humans and not baby goats. You know what? I... <laughs> I didn't think I loved children when I was 22, 23, and I'm a mom of two, and those actually boys, which are men now, and I'm very proud that they're grown up to be awesome men, um, have really changed my perspective on reaching out, and I love children now. They scared me before, but now that I understand kids, I've become a much better educator. I understand their interest and tolerance level and um, their curiosity and how it goes quickly from one to the next. And so now I do that much better than I did when I was in my 20s. Well, I feel like what you do specifically is like kids can find it fascinating and curious, but but children's personalities are such that the tide can change really quickly. So if you, you know, you've got like your spider monkey out and everyone loves a spider monkey there. We've got, we're going to have video of a spider monkey up uh, as a companion video to this interview. As a matter of fact, they're amazing. They're they're People love monkeys. They're intelligent. Um, you know, they're very similar to us. It's very captivating. Then you put the spider monkey away and then you pull out a scorpion or a tarantula. And, you know, some kids are very interested in that and others, you know, freak out. Does that happen? Yeah. How often does that happen and how do you handle that? Generally, you know what I find the scout is usually with an adult. So if we are doing, let's say, a library show and the parents are sitting with the children and we have this community event going on and the parent reacts and the child feeds off the parent, if the parents were sitting around the outside and the kids were all in a pot in the middle and I'm explaining about how mama scorpions are amazing because once they have their babies, most bugs, most, you know, keep it down in kids' terms, let the babies go off on their own. Fact is, some moms have to leave or they'll eat them, but not a mama scorpion. She'll leg out, let all those babies crawl up on her 
And she takes a couple of weeks teaching them where to find food, where to hide, um, different places to be, to be discreet and quiet. So turn it into a fun and fascinating story. Kids are all about it as long as they're not being subjected to, ooh, that's disgusting. So it's really interesting how we, we are subjected to what is comfortable and what is not. And of course, we always put our little disclaimers in there. Just because you see a scorpion doesn't mean it's like our friend the scorpion. Respect it and know it, it might be a mama looking for a good place to teach your kids. So yeah, that's a, it's interesting how kids respond. Well, and that's a good point there because I imagine one of the criticisms you get is that by showing people these types of animals, like specifically a scorpion and a tarantula, which exist you know, in nature and can, you can educate people on them, but they're also very easy to buy. Um, and in, in a way, I, I mean, I imagine one of the criticisms is that what you do can inspire people to buy exotic pets instead of the opposite, which you're, what you're trying to do is to make people more intellectual, like more intelligent with their decisions. You know, I and that was always my biggest um, fear when I was what well, I think I say uh, more of a pure when you work at a, a zoo or um a more corporate mentality, you definitely have to take that because you don't want to encourage tigers for pets or let's, you know, like you said, tarantulas or scorpions. But I feel with our uh, personal connection, we can talk a lot about it, um, give people better perspectives, why that is not necessarily maybe the best option for a three-year-old or, um, you know, just, just making better choices and explaining it better and giving it a personal experience. I think sometimes people want pets just to have the interaction, but then that wears off very quickly. And um, by giving them the interaction, it's maybe satisfying the need to have one for a pet. I've just found that it's been a lot more dissuasive than encouraging of people to get animals, just by satisfying the interaction and, and what they're there trying to experience. That's probably. I guess it can go either way. But I found it better. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, if you, you know, when you see something in the store, it's very easy to just like, you know, I've had people impulse buy pets, which is a really weird concept to me. Um, But I imagine seeing them uh, and you're like, oh, wait, it actually does this and this and you have to do this. And, you know, another thing is a lot of the animals that you have that that you don't think would live a long time live forever. Like turtles, you wouldn't think they'd live forever. But there's hundreds of turtles that are hundreds of years old in the sea. You know, it's... uh, People yep. don't realize, and parrots yeah. too. Hundreds and parrots. And that is, that is probably, and I do what I tell my staff, I, a soft sell on dissuading people from pets. So we tell, um, I like telling personal stories of the animals. People love cockatoos, big, beautiful uh, parrots, and they're very affectionate, but they really want to be in a flock. They want to be with other like-minded, loving, compassionate, grooming animals or people. And when you go to work or school, they're left solitary and they just can't take it. So we have animals that people have donated that have been self-mutilators. They overgroom and then they start plucking and then they start chewing and, or they go for the furniture. And we tell a story about this one bird, Angel, one of our first birds that were donated to us. And she was uh, everyone's favorite. She's, and we still have her. She's uh, about 48 years old. And she just got off her perch because we weren't keeping her in an enclosure at that time. And she chewed up the leg and off the leg of the desk and crashed down. And we walked in. I've never heard her talk before, but that particular day in a pile of shredded wood, she looked over and said, hello. 
and exciting and happy and like, whoa, that, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine if you had a dining room table that was thousands of dollars and your sweet little friend chewed the leg off of it? Not so happy. Uh, I've had expensive <laughs> shoes that a sweet little dog has chewed up, so I imagine it's a very similar feeling. Exactly. Oh, but whose fault is it? <laughs> if I left them out, well, I think it's you know I, I think that the blame is mutual on that one. To be perfectly honest with you, <laughs> I think we're both responsible. For, you know, in an equal percentage. Um, now, you, so you there said you that this this um, the bird was your first. How did this? How did the collections the collection? Can I say collection? What's the appropriate term? The group. That works, yeah. How, how did this? How did this yeah. start? I mean, like, what, what was the genesis of like, you know, what I'm going to start bringing in adopted animals and and you know taking them in. How did that start, and how does that regulate it so you don't have too many? Well, I, I was working at the San Diego Wild Animal Park or the Safari Park, as you know it now, and we were doing the educational um, public shows, the elephant program. I did um, the bird show, and I also did a program called Rare and Wild America with North American Animal Species. And after the shows, people would come up and we would do meet and greets and people would really like the connection we would have with the animals and actually were trying to give us, you know, I have a bird enough time that you seem like you'd be great and wanted to donate animals, which was one of twofold. The other thing I was noticing is that the park did really amazing school programs for kids in first and third grade. I mean, that was the areas of educational specific. And I thought, you know, why are we not doing early education with preschoolers and kindergarten and really get them interested in animals? And when they come and do these outreach pro or, you know, these field trip programs that they have a heart for it already. So I got this in my mind that I should do early educational programs with these animals that needed placement. So that is how that started back in the early 80s. So how did you get the word out that you would bring in animals? Did you just talk to rescues and, and people who had these types of animals and said, hey, look, I'll bring them in. I'm, I'm doing this this whole venture. You know, that was kind of organic. Um, we started Pacific Animal Productions with that cockatiel. I had talked about Angel. And um, I also at the time would look in the papers and see if there were any snakes because snakes weren't popular pets at that time uh, if that people were needing homes for or were giving to a good home. So we started with a boa constrictor, the cockatoo, a tortoise, an iguana. And um, then I had worked previously at a wildlife park in Oregon, and they asked if I was interested in taking uh, two ring-tailed lemurs and um, a green wing macaw. So that's how we started our with that handful or group of animals doing our outreach programs. And that means going to schools and preschools. And at first, of course, I uh, would just say, hey, I'd like to do this, and this are my background, and got hired on at a couple of preschools locally in Poway. That's where we started, San Diego, a little town there. And I was hoping that we could do programs, and then that would um, allow me to step away from the safari park and start my own business. If I could do that in a year, we could get going. But that happened in about five months. Wow, and no we have been steadily growing since then. Yes. So really ex exceeded my ex which told me uh, that that is something people are interested in. Now we do about 800 shows a year. 800 shows a year? Yeah. 
Whoa. Yeah, and that's not the fair programs. That's just the school programming and library shows. Wow. Well, I imagine the fair is probably a pretty big vendor. I mean, it's, you know, it's during most of the summer and, you know, it's, you're doing it for a couple of weeks. I mean, you're probably working every day for what? A yes. month And just one fair. Yes. For, for that, for the LA County fair, that is our biggest um, partnership. And that is the long, <laughs> the long fair. But we do set up the animals so that they have more permanent homes. When we go to different fairs, some fairs are only seven days, then those animals come home. And if we go to another fair, we bring a totally different um, group of animals to share with those guests. So the animals all the time, like my, my handlers are, my staff is, and I am, but the animals come for a week vacation, checking out people, and then coming back to the facility here in Fallbrook. So is, you know, is travel hard on them? I mean, I imagine that travel's got to be not something that, you know, an armadillo is necessarily used to unless he's the one doing the traveling. You know, we try to make that a normal part. We um, People ask me if my animals are trained, and I always used to say, no, they're not trained. They do whatever they want to do. Uh, but they are trained to go into carriers, and that's twofold. Again, we are in fire country. I want to be able to evacuate all of these animals to a safe location if fires are coming through. And we've had to do that several times since we've lived here. Um, and the animals are used to going in those carriers. Those uh, animals then are put into temperature controlled fifth wheels that are about 40, 38 foot long that have ambient temperature control where we can keep it at 75 or 78 degrees depending on the animal species with air filters and get them out of here. So they're used to doing that. Yep. I guess they are trained to be comfortable in those situations. So, um, yeah, I don't know that it's my trainers and I are really respectful to make sure that they're not exhibiting uh, stress behavior and they're all trained as professionals to look for that. And stress behavior is um, eating that's unnormal or eating nothing uh, we we get to check out the poop all the time because that is the number one sounds indicator like, of how your animal's like feeling. So much fun. I know. But hard poops mean they're not drinking enough and loose means that they're stressed or they're not eating correctly. We watch physical behavior, oversleeping, uh, not sleeping, what we call stereotypic behavior where they're pacing or doing a pattern that's over and over again, which is exhibiting stress. And so we are looking for those factors all the time. If an animal's doing that, they are not going to be on um, a display or put out for people to look at or, you know, experience and learn. So it's it's always animals first, and then the people get to learn about them when they're, when they're well, comfortable. Well, now what about, like, um, for example, a nocturnal animal? I imagine you have several nocturnal animals. Um when you so when yep. you bring them out during the day, isn't that kind of like you know waking us up in the middle of the night and asking us to perform? Like I know I couldn't perform that way. Well, then again, if you think about a bartender, it's what's normal for them. And most of these animals have previously been people's pets, so um, I don't. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that that is what their life is accustomed to. So they know that food's coming during the day. They know that activities during the day. But a nocturnal animal, we are not going to keep them up 15 hours to to do, run around, or walk over a vine, or come out for six, seven programs a day if they aren't used to that. We have a tamandua, which is a fancy word for an anteater, a type of anteater. And they are nocturnal, but he gets up five or six times a day on his own because he knows that's when we put out his mashed um 
insect um, gruel. He eats uh, like Slurpees four or five mm. times a day. And that's, I know, it's so delicious. And uh, we put it in different parts of his enclosure. So he's not just going to one dish and going back to sleep. He's exploring throughout his area and exercising. So we do that when we're out on the road as well. And that is normal part of activity for them. You said whipped insect gruel. Is that the technical term for it? Yeah, <laughs> it makes it sound more appetizing. It's uh, actually a pelleted diet called insectivore. We mix it with a vitamin K because anteaters tend to be hemophiliac. That is naturally occurring in the wild. Then we put in um, some uh, whey protein to give them some additional protein. And we put in citrus, which is really good for their digestion. So these are all formulated zoo diets that professional people have come up with. And then we tweak them for the individual animal. And we make this in the magic bullet, if you will, and four or five times a day. Just like, just like some humans. And we give them crickets. <laughs> yeah, just like some humans. <laughs> so you give them cricket, you give them live food as well? Yeah, we do. Crickets and mealworms, waxworms, uh, other beetle larvae. And we do that so that, you know, that's a normal digestive fibrous part of their sure, diet as sure. well. So our feed bill is quite unique. Yeah, I imagine that this is, um, you don't have to get into big numbers here, but I mean, it, it must be pretty expensive just for the feeding and care of so many different, I mean, if you had all birds, you know, you could probably get a discount, but you have right. so many different types of animals requiring so many different types of food. I mean, what's that? Can you get, what is that to you? What does that mean in your head? How does that work? Well, I'll give you a weekly idea of how it works. We have a produce company deliver about 300 pounds of food twice a week. Um, that produce company, you would think, oh, okay, they're getting the seconds. No, this is the same company that delivers to all the restaurants uh, in town here. So the guy, when he first delivered to us, thought I was a personal chef. You kind of are. And I was making great <laughs> Yeah, I, I totally am. I mean, you can eat anything here. You might not want to eat the insect gruel, but I guarantee you, you will be healthier than eating at any fast food restaurant. Or that's not saying much, but any other. So, so yep, we have all that fresh produce delivered. We have two freezers that we keep predisposed uh, animals like uh, chicks and rats. I know that's disturbing to people, but that is what many of the animals eat. And um, we keep thousands of those on hand, which is have been humanely euthanized. There is also a prepared carnivore diet, which is a meat-based diet for birds of prey and other meat-eating animals. We keep that as well. Um, we have a variety of nutritional supplements that we put in their diets, minerals and calcium. So yeah, it's an ongoing delivery. Once a week, we also get our mixed uh, dry pellets that are kept in a, a pantry area that's about a 10 by 15. So it's a huge pantry that has, um, like we have monkey chow and leaf eater and reptile pellets and tortoise pellets that are all put in with fresh diet as well. Well, I imagine, you know, one of the weird things, um, and I'm going to share an experience that I had um, when, when I was, when we were doing the filming, is that sure. you have so many different types of animals. And, you, you know, you have animals that are at the top of the food chain, and you have animals that, that mm -hmm. are at the bottom of the food chain. And you have all the animals in the middle. And it is kind of strange because I remember I was looking at your snakes and I saw, mm -hmm. you know, a live mouse inside the snake cage. And it was, you know, because that's what they eat. But it's strange. Like, it's got to be weird. You know, it's weird for me. And I'm not, you know, it's not my company. 
But I imagine it's got to be a little strange for you to have like, you know, one cage with with rats or mice or whatever that are for display and for teaching people. And then there's the other ones who get fed to the snakes. (laughs) How is that that decision made? (laughs) That is the key point right there. That is the hardest thing for an animal. Um, For me. Okay, I'll make it very specific. For me, that is the hardest thing. I mean, you don't want that that mouse to suffer. However, I have a particular snake that's not always good at eating predisposed or dead food that's thawed and warmed up and, you know, simulated to be alive. And he won't always do it. So Monty always needs uh, probably once or twice a month a live animal to take, to eat. And that is the hardest thing. I don't want to be in the room when he's grabbing it and constricting it. It's... um but then that's natural for him, not so natural for the rat. Cause like you had, perhaps, I think we talked about it. They could get away in the wild, but they're lightning fast. And it's not, I mean, I say, but it's the animal's going to have a certain degree of suffering, but it's faster than being grabbed by a hawk and punctured through the lung and waiting to be eaten. But the snake's pretty efficient at what they do. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, there's there's no right yeah. answer. I mean, I know you're probably used to giving political answers to these there things. Isn't. But in truth, you're, you are essentially God in this small ecosystem that you control. And it's this is the natural mm-hmm. order of things. It's just, as an animal lover, I don't know that I could... I mean, I'm the first one to admit that if I was... I always like to compare things to the zombie apocalypse. If we were in the zombie apocalypse... I would be awful at surviving because I would I would have to eat I would become a vegetarian immediately, um, and I'm not and I don't, I don't eat a lot of meat now, but I'd become well, a vegetarian immediately, and I would probably have to think about your whipped insect gruel, but it would not be appetizing. I don't know how I would do. I, I think I would die very quickly. I think you should consider that whipped insect thing. That is actually <laughs> I am considering a coming of age protein. <laughs> that is. We're all about that here in the West. We are going to be converting to that. I think that is pretty a hot topic coming up that protein insect, insect protein is accepted worldwide, not here in the West, but it's going to be, and it's going to solve a lot of hunger issues. So I think you're going to be okay, Daniel. I hope so. so. You know, I think, you know, just to give the people listening, um, if anyone owns one of these insect farms, the key to selling that type of thing is to make sure that it doesn't look like the source. So meaning when you eat fish with a head on it, it. it's very different than eating a fish fillet or a fish stick. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you... <laughs> That's why I think McDonald's is so popular. Right. No, right. Not saying that they feed us bugs. <laughs> I'm just saying they make it look so different, which is also kind of disturbing because I do a lot of work in the agricultural field that kids look at a little cow and then say, oh, and I go, but what did you have for lunch today? Exactly. <laughs> they don't associate exactly. And you really need to appreciate it. If we're eating animal material, you need to know where it comes from and appreciate the life form that originally was there, was given to us for I our totally protein. I agree. Um, now, you guys are, let's, the last thing about your company, and then we're going to get on to the animals, which is the fun part. Uh, what You guys are regulated, right, by the government. They're always, so they can crack down at any yeah. moment. Any moment. And they can come without, and they do come without an appointment. They come to inspect whenever they feel they need to or necessary or just as a regular they literally or metaphorically kick down your door and start rummaging through everything? 
Um, my inspectors are quite nice and classy. We don't, I mean, they won't have lunch with me or anything, but um, they're professionals. Most of them are veterinarians, so that is their specific field, animal health. Um, our fish and game officers are trained game wardens, so they're in for animal husbandry and, and natural, you know, as most as they can, animal control and health. They come to the door um, at our gate, and our facility is gated because we don't do public tours here. We do outreach. We go to you. Um, there's numbers. They can call us. They can ring a bell. And uh, by law, they're welcome onto the property at any time. I have no problem with it as well. We always have somebody here 24 hours a day. I live at the facility, and if I'm not here, there's somebody that stays at the facility in, a, in an apartment. Um, so the animals are are watched and have an accompanied uh, 24 hours a day. So they can come any time of day. And they do. And they don't kick it in, but they do not call or ring the bell. Now, you said by law they're welcome. Now, that's not true. By law, they're allowed access. You don't have to welcome them. You, you're well. You're right. They, by law, they're allowed access. I softened it by saying they're welcome. <laughs> Some people don't like government on their back. I don't mind because to me, if they're inspecting and they're finding we're doing it right, then people that are disheartened with animals in captivity can look and say, look, there's spot, you know, investigations, there's spot regulatory checks. And by all means, they're finding us, whatever they find, they can, they publicly report. So you can check us there's out. There's also government agencies that are charged with regulating food industries, and there's outbreaks of salmonella and E. coli everywhere. So I don't know that that makes me feel safe. But there's not enough inspectors. <laughs> absolutely, there there absolutely is not enough inspector. But at least there's some regulation. We're just not all yahoos out here doing the best <laughs> we think we're doing. Um, there's there's other companies out there that don't want inspectors because they don't have all the the investment, and they're you know. But they're hopefully few and far between. So you guys are highly regulated yahoos is what you're trying to say. Exactly. I understand. Don't, let, don't fool anybody. Oh. We are as much yahoo as anybody, <laughs> but we just try to make ourselves and the animals as comfortable as possible. Like all of us. Uh, now let's talk about the animals. Um, what is your favorite type of animal? Like what was, the, what was your gateway animal? Well, I must admit when I go back and look, when I was 19, 18, you know, graduating and I had my ultimate job, I saw a press release that said I got accepted into a college and I was going to train to be a dolphin trainer at oh, SeaWorld. Wow. That was my experience with education. Um, that was the leader at the time in the 80s of working with animals. And so I thought that's what I wanted to do. Now I realize it doesn't have to be you can get education across to kids with, like you said, a scorpion or a tortoise or a turtle. It doesn't have to be these high-impact animals like a tiger or a lion or a bear. It can be animals that just reach and teach. So I've changed a lot. My gateway animal uh, went to college, got a job working at a wildlife park up in Oregon, and I was uh, traveling doing educational programs with a cheetah talking about um, biodiversity that had bottlenecked and now cheetahs were on the verge of extinction and they still wow. are. Um, and it, what about insects? The, often the forgotten animal. Um, you seem to have a lot of them. Now, yeah. Now one of my favorite animals, I, I was not a fan when I started into education and wildlife. I just 
see the faces of people that experience a hands-on interaction. And I'm not just talking kids, the kids at heart, people let down their adult facade and become children when they get an experience meeting that kind of animal and conquering fears and understanding them better and getting a better appreciation. Because of that, I am now a huge invertebrate insect um, arachnid lover. Well, let's talk about that for a second. So we're going to hit some of the animals that we're going to show videos of later on, which is a great collection. I would love these. But the one that you almost insisted on before you told me this story, you insisted on a tarantula. You said, are you an arachnophobiac? And I said, well, no, but I don't love them. <laughs> and you were like, oh, hey, go get the tarantula for this idiot. And we ended up not using a tarantula, which is great. Now, after I had said no, you decided to share the story about about you. You want to tell the story? Or should I tell it for you? You tell it because I'll see. I'll see how it, how that turned out. <laughs> so the story, as I remember it, is you were in, in a group full of kids, and you had a tarantula, and the tarantulas, you know, doing what tarantulas do, crawling around, not exhibiting any aggressive behaviors. And then right. kind of out of nowhere, it rears up and bites you in the hand in front of all these children. And you said it felt like yes. a staple gun in your hand, which made me <laughs> visibly cringe. And then you said not only did you have to keep your cool after getting stapled in the hand, but the fangs, which are curved and very long, if anyone's ever seen a tarantula fangs, they're very long, you had to actually unhook it from your hand in front of all these kids and then... I don't know what you did with it at that point. I assume stepped on it, but you had to. I'm just kidding. No, joke, no. <laughs> joke, joke, joke. But you had to unhook it from your hand and put it away and keep your cool the entire time, which you said you did. I have a hard time believing that anyone could keep their cool, but I have to take you at your word. Well, did, here's the option. Yes, you did great. I'm glad. And Thank yes, you. and now you refresh me. You did physically cringe at that. And, uh, mm. Here, here is I. I could have three hundred kids screaming and running out an auditorium, and the teachers looking at me like, you know, a four-headed woman. What the heck just happened there? Or keep it educational and let them know. Look, this is you don't want them as a pet. This particular animal just bit me, but I'm not going to die. And so, do and keep it as a teaching moment. But here, now that you've told that story, clicked me back to my one of my most impressive moments. Do you remember Joan Embry? She was the spokesperson for San Diego uh, Zoo. She also, oh, she was on Johnny Carson. This is a woman that inspired me to do these amazing educational things. So I did a gig with her, and I brought a turkey for Thanksgiving thing, and the turkey was Mr. Peepers, and he was gobbling, and she was holding a bowl of food, and he was eating it, but he missed and grabbed her hand, and I know he was pinching the snot out of her in between her thumb and her finger. Yeah. And he was twisting and pulling, and she's on TV. And I'm thinking, why is she not screaming? How is that not making her want to boot that turkey across the studio? And she just kept going and talking about turkeys. And after the segment, she gently removed his beak, and she went back and rubbed it. She did. You did not see anything. I was so impressed with that. I'm like, oh, I want to be like Joan Embry. She's a rock star. She can do that. And what a professional. So anyways, that was my inspiration. She, she did a teaching moment and didn't lose her cool. See, I think it would have been really funny if she was on there and it bit her hand. And she's like, oh, yes, turkeys are great. Huh? Thanksgiving. Ah, ah, ah. And then they go to commercial yeah. and she gently removes it, walks into the back <laughs> and then like screams her head off. Screams. <laughs> that would have been hilarious. <laughs> 
you know she was screaming in her head, but she was keeping it cool. <laughs> but getting so getting beaked by a turkey, if that's the proper term, is much different yeah. than getting bit by a tarantula, getting fanged by a tarantula. So I gotta well, say, you, maybe... might have, you might have a better war story. <laughs> maybe visually it looks scarier, but I think that turkey was ripping on her hand. The the fang story, yeah, it makes me sound like I'm really super brave, but um, I just had to keep it together for the kids, and I now know and can personally tell people that you won't die or get totally mortally wounded by tarantula fangs. And you're right, they are very big. Even a little tarantula has about fangs that are a quarter of an inch to a half an inch long. God. Well, yeah, and I think the average staple is about a quarter of an inch, so you, the, the, the metaphor still stands. Although I will say that turkeys are not venomous and tarantulas are, so there's a slight difference in animals, but I do understand. Yeah. <laughs> well, so let's talk about tarantulas since we're, talk, since we're on them. This is because they're a pretty cool animal. Um, they, so they shed their skin a couple times a year and can replace appendages? How cool is that? Nature's amazing. I mean, we are actually even learning from the regeneration process how they're doing that and they're adapting that to human science. So, yep, they molt or shed their exoskeleton twice a year, to, uh, once a year, depending on their age. Female tarantulas can live up to 12 years and they grow continually their whole life. So, they have to get rid of that restrictive exoskeleton. If they're on the way and a bird plucks off their leg or they've got stuck in a rock and their leg breaks off, they'll regenerate the leg. It'll be small the first regeneration and third, it'll be completely normal. It's an amazing animal and uh, or creature. Males usually live to be about three to five. Do you know why the boys live a lot less than the girls? Probably because they get eaten by the girls is my guess. Yeah, girls rule, that's right. Yeah, in the tarantula <laughs> world, uh, the females um, copulate with the males and usually afterwards then have them for dinner to uh, have enough protein to lay over 200 eggs. So it's really a very interesting life cycle for tarantulas. I'm sure that's a lot of uh, women's fantasies when they're on horrible first dates. Uh, <laughs> and let's talk about the predator of the tarantula, which is also pretty cool, the pepsid wasp. Oh, yeah, that is a really cool, um, it's it's symbiotic relationship, not always the best relationship, but uh, tarantula wasp comes in and um, stings a tarantula and embeds an egg, and they carry it around. The egg is parasitic. Once it hatches, it goes through a pupa stage within the tarantula, using up its protein sources, and then goes from there, metamorphosizes into a tarantula wasp and starts the process over again. But don't, don't they eat the tarantula? I mean, it's that... Yeah, they do, actually, from the inside out. Yeah, that's awful. You missed that part. That's the gruesome reality oh, of sorry. nature. Yeah, that's me working with preschoolers. I, some, no, I know it's fully probably adult not right. audience here. This is a fully adult... Okay, don't hold anything back. All right. Uh, but yeah, they consume them and, and turn them into a gelatinous mass as they <laughs> suck it through their mandibles and go on through. <laughs> Which would be whipped tarantula slurry or gruel. In a way, exactly. All they all break it down to a soupy, mild, massive <sighs> consumption. <laughs> oh, um, all right, let's move on to the hissing cockroach. Now, this is one that I requested because I actually find these animals to be kind of fascinating. They're not as I don't know. There's something like almost um, charming about the Madagascar hissing cockroach as opposed to the domestic cockroach here in the United States. Explain the hissing I part. 
Yeah, I agree. I think they're a more uh, attractive uh, insect. Uh, our our water bugs or our cockroaches here are not as pretty, but the hissing cockroach has a really cool exoskeleton that's real shiny and it's big and dynamic. Uh, the males are about two inches long from head, if you will, to tail. And um, they get the name hissing cockroach because they have learned to uh, monopolize on this sound that's very similar to a snake under the leaves. So when birds are hunting, that they can feel the bird moving above and start hissing and it sends the bird away. So they mimic the snake sound to protect themselves. Cool cockroach facts. A cockroach can live without its head. People might know that, but that would be like a bird plucking the head off. And the reason is the females have the instinct to survive the species. And if they're gravid or pregnant, they'll lay eggs in about two weeks. So that two week survival will actually let the body keep those eggs going. And when they hatch, they'll go on and keep the species going. Now, when you say cool live, thing. That, that is really cool. But when you say live, I mean, they're not like going about their day. They're basically just a, an alive oh, body. They, that's They walk around. They go about their day. They do. What oh. happens is the brain cluster is in the head, but there's also a reserve cluster in the rear end. So I tell the kids it's brain in the booty and they get it. You know, they're like, what? Oh, that takes over. And they will go to places to hide. They can't go to find food because there's nothing to eat or drink with anymore. But the body will move away from heat. The body will move away from vibration. It will move to a safe place that they will continue surviving until those eggs hatch, and which is about a week and a half to two weeks. That's crazy. A reserve cluster. It is I wish crazy. I had a reserve cluster of brain. Me too. <laughs> Even if it was in my booty, I'll take it. <laughs> Wherever. Yeah, I don't, I'm not picky. Wherever you want to put it. Um, oh, and also the, what's also special about these is the males have like a horned head and they kind of do like the goat thing. Don't they smash each other in the head for dominance? They do that carapace. It's actually the heads underneath that horned, um, area. So it looks like their head, but it's on, if you will, shoulder pads do push other males away from the female for breeding rights. That goes on even the most basic level, level. I'm better than you are. And they use that to get the other males away from their girls. So does that, as a woman, does that bother you that that's how they rule, that the men fight over the breeding rights of the women? Like, that seems <laughs> like they're very backwards in the cockroach community. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess if I went full feminist on that, it would bother me. But here is a satisfying, <laughs> interesting uh, fact. If you step on a cockroach, you're not getting rid of them. It puts out a pheromone and it tells all those boys reproduce as fast as you can because they're killing our species. Oh, so I wow. guess there's satisfaction for the female with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. in a weird sense of way. Yeah, in a weird. No, I get it. The, I get once again the women are the ones calling the shots. That's right. Come and on, they're, let's. They're, they're a pretty prolific species, so. A very, very much twenty thousand offspring in a year it could be an act and that is a lot of that is a lot of eggs being produced it sure is um the last insect that that we have um incredible video for is the walking stick another personal favorite of mine i've never seen one of these in real life and i gotta tell you it was as amazing as i imagined it these are pretty interesting creatures they are they are super fascinating. I wish I, I need to know more about them. 
I know basics about the walking stick. Again, they can regenerate their appendages. They do break them way more than most insects or arachnids. They're insects, six-legged. Cool thing about the uh, walking stick, they're found pretty much on every continent except for Antarctica and uh, the North Pole, so north and south. They are a bramble or a plant-eating animal. And if there are no opposite sex, they can morph to their bodies to become the opposite sex. If they're the only animal, there's no other breeding partner around, they can be asexual and produce eggs that are fertilized. So strange. Wow. Wow, that is crazy. Now, when you say asexual, you mean that they like break off parts of their body to reproduce or they can... Like hermaphroditic in a way. Not to get too technical. Hermaphroditic. Mm. Yeah, exactly. They can they can then um, in, split and become both male and female, produce the egg and be, uh, produce um, uh, the semen to go ahead and fertilize the egg. Wow. All within one body. Well, so why it's, do they specialize in? Oh, I guess for genetic um, diversity, they 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 become exactly. male and female. Okay, that makes sense. But under You're extreme really, conditions. That's smart. That's good. You got that. That's great. Exactly. I've, I've seen I mean, Jurassic they could Park. Do that, but then, yeah. Good. See, we learn things from even Hollywood. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I love biology. I'm not going to sell myself short that I learn everything from movies. But, good. Thank you. It doesn't sound like it. <laughs> no. Uh, but it's very interesting that under extreme conditions that insects can do that. But I imagine because they're not as advanced, you know, on the evolutionary scale as others, that that's kind of easier for their you know, for their body to do as opposed to us, just you know, when we're alone. being Which makes to... you go, hmm, sometimes that non-progressive is good. You know, they, that's good for them. Yeah. It is, very much so. Um, all right, let's talk about the hedgehog, and then we, okay. may, be, we may be out of time for, for this. Let's talk about the hedgehog. You showed me a hedgehog. I played a lot of Sonic as a kid. I'm sure you hear that a lot. So it was, <laughs> it was very fun for me to see that a real hedgehog does just about everything except go around and loop the loops that the Sonic did. <laughs> it's kind of cool. They roll into a ball, yeah. they're spiky, they're everything. Yeah, so the game makers were good. They actually knew a bit about hedgehogs. And the ball is for protection and escaping danger, just like Sonic. Um, the spiky hair, and I'm not going to call them quills because they're actually not related to porcupines. They're related more to anteaters. And armadillos, armadillo has a hard exoskeleton, and so that is uh, just a modified protection that they use for the hedgehog, but it's spiky. And, um, yeah, they also can stay in that ball as long as they need until danger's gone. So, yeah, pretty cool and similar. I wish they were blue, though. That would be very cool. Well, they're not blue, and they're not very fast. (laughs) No, they're – yeah, you're right. You know, if they're after a bug – they can go, but not near as fast as the game. <laughs> yeah, and I imagine they don't really like gold as much as, as Sonic did. He had, um, yeah, he had some kind of weird thing going on with that. Well, Carla, that's all the time we have for this, but you're going to stick around, and we're going to do a quick little thing about animals specifically. We're going to talk about maybe 10, 10, 12 minutes about all the animals you have and a couple interesting facts. Is that right? Do you agree? That's great. I agree. Let's, I hope they're interesting, and I'm into it. Let's do it. Well, let's hit, so let's hit promo time right now. Where can people find you, get in touch with you, and preferably hire you? Well, you know, um, that's always a bonus to hire, but you, we've got tons of free events you can come to and experience. 
um, the animals that we have that we get to share. Pacific Animal Productions is our webpage. And um, also we have a Facebook page that's pretty active and we post interesting like Fun Fact Fridays for animals. It's uh, I get a lot of response on that. People enjoy seeing that on their feed. And I don't know if Facebook is as popular as it once was, but uh, come on there and it, we always post where we're going to be in Southern California or throughout California, I should say. And you can come out and see us for free. And if you've seen us or heard of us, let us know how, because it's always fun to connect the dots. It sure is. And it is, you guys do do a lot of free events. I mean, that's how I saw you originally. Um, this is, uh, you know, you guys do a lot of good work, a lot of fun stuff. Thank you. Yes. We're going to do more this year. 800, 800 events in climbing. Uh, all right, Carla. Well, thank you for being on the show. I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night.